This series of Crisis Talks is brought to you by Noggin, integrated incident management software that helps organizations manage disruption smarter. As a free offer to all Crisis Talks listeners, you'll get access to their COVID-19 return to work software module. Visit www.noggin.io forward slash crisis talks to learn more and get access to the module. When crisis strikes, organizations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In crisis talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. In episode two of the Deepwater Horizon Crisis, Clint Honeycutt takes us through the actions immediately following the sinking of the Deepwater Horizon oil rig and the environmental disaster that ensued. With millions of gallons of oil leaking into the Gulf of Mexico, we explored what was the change in the response objective and how that translated into the wider crisis response to the environmental impacts of the disaster on the region. Interestingly, in this interview, we also uncovered a lot of the emotional impacts that these disasters can have on the people who are involved in the front line of the response. Clint talks about the juxtaposition around wanting to respond to do the right thing by the community, whilst at the same time feeling impacted by the fact that his company had caused this disaster. These emotions really come through in any particular response and uh, things that organisations must be prepared for when dealing with a crisis that affects their own organisation, people and reputation. So ladies and gentlemen, sit back and enjoy episode two of Crisis Talks for 2021, the Deepwater Horizon Crisis with Clint Honeycutt. The first part of it was uh our people and and getting them accounted for and 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 our our the wounded you know treatment and and all of that um the second part of it was was kind of a gut check that oh crap now it sank and we have no way to control the 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 oil coming up uh that that that's there now and what kind of impact is this rig sinking also going to have on that? Right? Is it going to is it going to sink down where it's over the well and it creates a bigger problem? Um, but but nonetheless, when you think about you know a well um, just uh, just spilling oil with no way to stop it, um, you, you know that you're in it for the long haul. And that's what I meant by you know, it, it was kind of a, a, a gut check. It just went from a um, emergency that you, you kind of have, con- I'll call it have control over, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's there and it's on fire and, and you have this thing. 
You're in that um, mode. You're in response mode. Yeah, you've, you're sort of controlling what you can control and working through the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and now you're now something has happened that uh, at least me and look, I'm sure the some others have. We're already thinking about the the bigger piece. For me, that was the uh, oh no, you know, we could be in this for months. Um, you know, reality. Um, when we watch it sink. Um, the, the discussion was that, oh no, we're going to have this major oil spill and we're not going to be able to control it from Houston. We've got to move to Louisiana right. um, and be closer to the, uh, the shoreline and the, the, the main government bodies that will be responding to this incident will be out of, or uh, closer to Louisiana and the coast versus Houston. So, uh, the decision was made to actually uh, to, to, to start getting, uh, uh, and again, luckily BP was prepared for that. Uh, they had actually built a facility uh, in Houma, Louisiana, uh, and actually set up an area to be able to respond to a major, major emergency like this if it happened, uh, knowing that major oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico uh, would require an on a, a, a ICS team in Louisiana. Um, and how far, for everyone's benefit, how far away was Louisiana you know, by flight or by, by you know, drive from, from Houston? It's roughly about an hour drive from, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, it's about an hour flight from Houston mm -hmm. uh, into New Orleans, and then Homa is about an hour out of New Orleans. Um, if, uh, if we, drove it, it's roughly about four and a half to five hours so that that was the difference so you're picking up essentially from there you're looking at picking up the incident command center and moving it to homer and re-establishing that base there for for future ops that was the discussion um so real quickly they said okay well who needs to to you know who can we get down there to start setting this up and um, I, I volunteered to go. Um, I, I grew up in Louisiana. I'm real familiar with Louisiana. I'm, I was familiar with the, the HOMA Center that we had there. Yeah. Uh, I had done several things there um, and, uh, and had also you know, been part of the response so far in, uh, in the first day. Um, so at, at least have, have, you know, understand the situation, understand where we're at, and can easily transfer down there to, to go get it set up. Um, so myself and eight others, um, one of those eight was also, a, a, uh, I think there was two other B, BP um, employees. Yeah. Uh, then the others were um, emergency response specialists. Uh, Greens was the, the name of the company. And I think there might've been some other consultants that was there. Uh, so we jumped on, they had a, uh, a BP jet that we would actually uh, use to fly back and forth when we would go offshore. The leadership team would use it going from uh, Houston to uh, Houma. Um, so we jumped on that that afternoon. Um, basically, I went home, got some clothes. Uh, and then at about five o'clock, we flew uh, PM. We flew from um, from Houston to Houma. And it was it was on that flight um, that I, I really started to get a perspective on how big this was actually going to be. Um, the emergency response 
experts that were on the plane started talking about um, the, the, the vessels, the skimming vessels, um, all the different response vessels um, that, that they have stood up for this incident. And they said that, um, you know, you're pulling vessels from all over the world and getting them turned to come to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and they started talking about skimming vessels and it said, look, you know, these are the only, I want to say it was three. Again, my memory is a little bit foggy, but the only three skimming vessels of this size in the world and all three are on their way to the Gulf of Mexico to respond to this event. It's getting turned around now. Yeah, I mean, so, and, and they were just, they started talking about all these other vessels and the things that was happening. And, uh, you know, quickly I, I realized, you know, holy crap, this is, you know, uh, something that we have never seen before. And that's, that's what they were talking about, right? Here's the, some of the best experts in the world, um, you know, talking about the magnitude of this has never been seen uh, from a response standpoint. Never been seen, uh, and we, we often hear that in most sort of incidents, either from the media or, or more often than not from the media and other externals. But uh, you had foreseen this type and nature of event, uh, as you were saying before, with your preparedness. How's that delta come between you know what you've planned for versus what you actually get? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I... I Honestly, I, I, I don't necessarily have, have the answer. Uh, the, 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 the only thing I can give you is just my opinion of, you know, the, when it doesn't go as planned, um, you, you settled at some point in the planning to that's good enough. Yeah. Right. Because if not, then, you know, you, you would have had, uh, you know, different contingencies for stopping uh, a, an uncontrolled well. You would have, you know, it was clear in that it took us what it, it we didn't secure it until September. So from uh, from April to September, um, you, you had an uncontrolled well. Um, so uh, so you, you would have to put yourself in a place where uh, look, the, the controls you thought would, would work didn't. And yeah. I, I think you, you've seen that because BP was fairly open with, you know, all the, the different things that they were looking at from a top hat uh, situation where you put something on top of it that funnels it up. Yeah. Uh, there, there was all kinds of theories. And, and look, they, you know, they put it out there and said, anybody with an idea, we're ready to listen, um, yeah. which, you know, which is a little bit uncommon in a in a in, in the legal world that we have today very yeah very but i think it's also um it's also a testament that you know you've got to take all options in in these circumstances um and that's that balance between you know doing the right thing and protecting um the legal perspective for the organization so i think doing the Look, right I thing will often be the the way that you're measured and I agree. Uh, and I can't tell you that I, I wasn't disappointed in that we couldn't stop it. Right. I mean, that, that, that's for me, that's disappointing that um, that we planned, but didn't plan good enough. Right. I mean, that's at, at the end of the day, that's the uh, you know, I, that's where we ended up was the plan just wasn't good enough. And and, you know, sub subsequently after that, um, you know, 
we recognized that the tools that we said we were going to use just weren't good enough and uh, and couldn't do what we thought it could do. Uh, sharing the pipe, doing you know the, the the tools just were were inadequate to do the job that that we said it would would work. And I say we as in the company I worked for. Hmm. You've you've we'll come back to that component there. I think Clint, because I think it is you know it's important to you know particularly when you're looking at the how you're planning for major crisis because you know it's often very difficult to plan or very difficult to put your mindset in that worst case scenario. What is the scale? What's the what's the the you know the the absolute worst case you can think of? Is there so many foreseeable? branches and variants to those and and from a mindset point of view it's very hard i think for humans to do that so i think military do it well so we we generally you know they us with that background tend to think about those worst case but in in general i think we we sort of try and avoid those where possible but rolling back to you know you you've now had this mission or the objective of going setting or the task rather of going setting up this new incident command center in homer um Walked through that. I mean, you 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 roll in there. You've you've th- uh, flown in on the jet. Um, what's happening on the ground at that point in time? Can you explain this sort of again the scale and what was going on at that point in time on the ground there? Sure. Uh, so at that time, really, um, there was uh, you know the decision was just made. We're talking four hours before that we were going to move. That at some point we were going to move to Homa. Yeah. And. What, what I was told um, when I was asked to go was that, look, over the next week, we're going to move down to Homa. Uh, so what, what we want you to do is go down there and with the team and start getting set up um, to be able to, to provide the safety officer, H- you know, to, 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 to provide the HSC support uh, or safety support for uh, the incident command center when it stood up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we arrived... Uh, again, I mentioned, I think the plane left about five something. I think we got there about six. By the time that we got a car and, and loaded up and went to the facility, it was probably seven or eight o'clock. Uh, keeping in mind, we, you know, I think we stopped to eat and then we, we go there, uh, you know, lights off, nothing. You, you turn on the lights and you recognize that, look, we didn't have a printer. Uh, you know, this facility was, was fairly new. Uh, the, the, the vision of it would be that it's that we're eventually going to have it all set up like Houston incident command center in case we have to, uh, to, to, to move it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's just like walking into a, a big conference room, uh, a okay. massive conference room with some tables and, um, and, and chairs. Yeah. So, so me and the rest of the team are looking at this and we're going, Oh man. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to do here. So we went to the, the, the nearest store and we bought all the supplies that we could think of, uh, printers, um, anything that they had, we bought monitors, extension cords. I mean, just the basics of any paper, right. That, you know, all of those things, we, we, we bought as much as we possibly could basically from about eight or nine o'clock till uh, I think uh, when we finished unloading everything it was probably about one o'clock that night. Um, and, and again, this was just the first trip and we knew that we, yeah. we knew that, you know, look, we need some of these basic things if we were ever going to think about starting up here, but we also knew in the back of our mind that it was going to be a week long. So 
you know, that, that transition should take time and, and it was going to be about a week. Um, so we went to sleep that night, roughly about two o'clock. Uh, we got up at five and, and uh, we went to the facility because we were going to be meeting what we were told we were going to be meeting some of uh, a couple Coast Guard uh, 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 partners um, to, to talk through, you know, what this transition is going to look like and what they need of us and how we can work together. Um, so we arrived on site again, probably 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And when we arrived on site, there was about 50 to 75 Coast Guard people, um, at, which is in, in the U.S., that's the, the government that, that, that's Coast Guard waters. Yeah. Um, and there's about 50 to 75 Coast Guard people there asking us, uh, we're here, when are we going to take over? Um, uh, the ICS here. Right. And so we had to explain to them that that was that, that as we understood it, that wasn't the intent. This is, and, uh, as the morning continued, people just kept showing up government officials, coast guard, um, delegates, senators, uh, you name it. Uh, they just kept showing up and, uh, and expecting everything to be ran from that facility. Everything to be laid out for them. Yeah. Uh, so if I remember correctly, I think that day, uh, there, there was conversations from that, from, um, HOMA to Houston IMT and, uh, and discussions about kind of how fast can we get up and running? So they chartered flights, they did all kinds of things to get more people there. Um, and if I remember correctly, the next morning, uh, they actually switched the ICS from Houston to Houma. Uh, at that time, uh, there was another person that was the safety officer. So he had actually taken on the safety officer role and I was the HNS unit leader um, mm -hmm. at that time. But we had a phone and a couple of printers and, uh, and our laptops and we, were, uh, and we were working through the ICS uh, system. Um, now they, still, um, so go ahead, sorry. Still mainly supported from Houston because there were so many things that we couldn't do, uh, but getting the situation board up and, and you know, there, there was some, some movement on that side too, but it was almost like it was joint, jointly ran some of it through Houston and some of it through uh, Louisiana, which was, was it, it, there was some good side behind that because you had more resources, yeah. but it was bad because an ICS clearly has to be ran through one chain of command. And to have multiple people with their fingers in the pot um, definitely, you know, it, 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 uh, muddies the water. Yeah. It complicates matters, doesn't it? And, 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 sure. and how's that complicated further when you're looking at an external agency or multiple external agencies coming together in the one, you know, in the one response? Well, um, it, it could be a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, and the fact that it could be, uh, with this particular event, um, I, I think it was actually done really, really well from, from, from what I saw. And again, keep in mind, my, my piece is just a small piece in one location. Um, and, 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 and you know, that, that's what I'm experiencing, right? So, uh, I can only imagine what's going on on the other side and other, and other parts. But for me, um, 
every everybody that I ran into or everybody that uh, was part of the discussions was about how can we help uh, and what can we bring to the table um, where in some situations what people are worried about is you know now the government's here and we're gonna take over yeah um, th the discussion was that, you know that I heard was never around that it was about uh, hey look we're here to support you've got it you own it and and we're here to support so that that was really a great thing versus there being a lot of you know don't make me take over and 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 uh and criticize versus yeah. come in and be a part and help be part of the solution and help and from what i saw everybody was wanting to be part of the solution and wanting to jump in and help now you've you've with the ics how much that help with that command and control and coordination arrangements the fact that you had that system and that process did that that really help reinforce that connection with the other agencies? It did. Uh, I mean, uh, and I can't recall specific conversations, but uh, I remember, you know, no, that's not my role. That's not what I'm here to do. Or I, I can't make that decision or, yeah. or I can, right. Or I've got full flexibility that, you know, I remember signing a, uh, a, um, a, 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 a requisite for 200 safety people um, to, to, to help, you know, do air monitoring uh, on shorelines from, you know, the tip of Florida all the way around to the tip of Texas. Um, so, you know, there are things like that where you, you knew you had that and you had that authority and you had that, the backing of the ICS. Um, and, and in addition, you knew the things that you didn't have. So you could pass those things off confidently to somebody that has it and have confidence that it will get done. You know, a, a, a big thing is people, you know, tend not to want to give some of their authority or some of the things away because they don't know how to get done if they give it away. Yeah. Um, but the ICS, the way that it's set up, gave me great confidence that, um, you know, look, it's, it's, uh, this is an, an, you know, air monitoring or it's spill, um, uh, Plume, looking at plumes and the spill itself and kind of what it's going to hit, you know, I knew I could hand that over to the environmental team, fully capable of doing it all set up and ready and, 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 and you know, could answer questions really easily. So I could just move that off my plate and focus on the things that matter for yeah. my job in that response. Yeah, I think Ronald Reagan used the term sort of, you know, trust. I think it's a great term in these contexts because it means you can trust that this is going on. You can validate and check with each other on the respective boards that these things are happening. And then you can just really focus and, and zero in on what you really need to zero in on. You, you said that you had that transition between the, you know, from the response, you know, the emergency response phase, and then you've moved everything to HOMA or you're starting to transition that move to HOMA. Um, what was the objectives that you recall then when, when now you're starting to deal with that environmental impact of the, of the rig going down? Yeah, it's funny. You would think that, that you could really transition through the objectives fairly easy. Um, but the reality is, 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 uh, is that the, the, the objectives almost stayed the same all the way through the incident, the top three objectives. Yeah, okay. People, environment, uh, then um, you know, then then assets is the way that I remember it anyway. Yeah, and you got you guys use the Pearl mnemonic as well. So people, environments, assets, reputation, livelihood, same. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, so it, it made um, 
<clears throat> the briefing is really easy. That's, you know, they, they start off with the objectives, uh, they end with the objectives. And yeah. when you look at people, you would think because the rig is, is, is now at the bottom of the sea, you've got an oil spill, all the people uh, are, are accounted for that was gonna be accounted for. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you would figure, okay, now you move to the environment. But reality is, is that, you know, you're, you've got, you know, if you think about the magnitude of this, uh, I, I looked at, a, I pulled up a picture today and, and just kind of re refresh myself on looking at the, the site itself. Yeah. Um, you, you know, at, at any given time, we probably had, uh, you know, 50 vessels in a, 15 mile radius of the spill, right? And that's just within it, not considering the boats outside of that that's doing work and the, the ones in route. I'm talking about just inside of that 15, I call it 15 mile circle. And I, they, they had circles built, but I don't remember what that number was. But yeah. within a picture, I could count 30 boats. So if you just think about that and you think about plumes of oil coming up, you know, each boat had to be outfitted uh, so that it could operate in uh, in in a situation with high via, uh, uh, you know, high volatile chemicals, uh, you know, uh, in the area. So your air intakes, uh, you so you wouldn't suck that air in, and your people is still your priority, right? So you want to make sure you're not, you know, putting people in harm's way by responding to this incident. So um, if, if just the number of plans and things that had to be created for any vessel to go in, uh, BP had a SIMOPS coordinator, there, you know, a whole team that actually just managed what vessels could move into what areas and what they could do and who, who, what vessel was the one that in charge. It's no different than ICS. You've got to have that same structure with your vessels. Um, so look, it was just a, a, a a magnitude of, uh, of coordination amongst different groups. And honestly, without the ICS and, and the, the structure associated with that, um, you would have been hard pressed to manage that chaos. So breaking that down a bit, so for every vessel that was going within that area, there was obviously a risk that they would be enveloped by the oil plume. What risk did that present to people? And then what plans needed to be in place for each and every one of those 30 odd vessels or, or everything else that went with that? Well, uh, several, um, uh, and look, I'm not gonna be able to just recall all the risk, but several <laughs> of the big ones that really stand out um, yeah. because I never thought that I would ever get a call where somebody would tell me that, uh, hey, this is so-and-so from, from such and such drill ship. Um, we're on site and we're stuck in oil and I, I i remember getting that call because my you know you're i, I kind of scratch my head and, and, and i'm like you're stuck in oil so okay so what does that mean and that meant that a, basically a plume of oil came up you can't predict where it's going to come up you're five thousand feet of water um and the the the, the, the well is spitting oil right so uh as it's coming up it comes up in these plumes um, and it can come up anywhere depending on, on the current um, and depending on, uh, you know, other factors that go into it, it can come up anywhere. So, uh, so basically what had happened was a plume of oil came up underneath a vessel that was, uh, that was out there. Um, and the call that, that we received was, 
you know, I'm on such and such drill ship and I'm stuck in oil. And I had to get my mind around exactly what that meant. But look, you have freshwater intakes on these vessels uh, that cool engines that, uh, you know, uh, that, that produce water. And, and there's all kinds of things associated with that. Um, uh, so you, if you go taking in oil, oil is, is uh, flammable. So yeah. running through engines and, and the, the VOCs that it's putting off, uh, you know, uh, the air itself, the air um, itself, yeah, okay. The the fumes itself uh, is not something that you want people to breathe without respirators. So, do you have the right respirators on site? Do you have the number of respirators that you need for the entire crew? Do you have filters because your air filter filtration system uh, doesn't come with just normal filters that will filter out, uh, you know, the the VOCs from the 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 oil itself. So it was all of those things, and be quite honest. In my up to up to that point, I had I had very little interaction with industrial hygienists, um, and, and and quite frankly, I thought they you know they did a great job. But on on my facilities that that I supported, uh, I just you know they checked the water, they checked the air, and then they would move off, and and they would tell me it's either good or bad, and 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 we would put the controls in place. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, although I think their job was important, um, I never realized the importance of an industrial hygienist until we started looking at these plans, which were almost all industrial hygiene. Um, you know, so uh, it was, look, they, uh, I learned so much from that response from an industrial hygienist uh, perspective. Um, and, and I will say that, you know, that was one resource that I n- had never, even in drills and all that, never really accounted for. Uh, but look, a- a- an invaluable resource um, it, it, it was, was all the hygienists that, uh, that helped support that incident. So were there many other sort of secondary or third line incidents that happened? Because you've got this massive operation now going on. Surely that brings with it a, another level of risk and complexity, like you said, with the you know the the plume enveloping that particular vessel. Were there any other sort of second or third line incidents that that everyone was co- conscious of, and and how are they sort of managing that from an incident management perspective? Yeah, it's uh, uh, the only way I can describe it uh, is if you think about a Gatling gun where you turn the handle and this thing just kind of, it, it just shoots thousands of bullets, right? It, it, every, every second it's shooting thousands of bullets. Um, honestly, the number of problems that were, were, were coming, uh, were coming Gatling gun style. Yeah. It was like, you know, <clears throat> just to, to rattle off a few, when we talk about incentive to burning, so you have yeah. these ships that are capturing oil uh, then they're burning the oil um, to, uh, and, and that way it stops it from uh, from being able to do any destruction moving moving inland. Um, mm. If you can burn it, then uh, then it burns off, and you don't have the the impact. Yeah, so, so one of the one of the plans was just burning it off as it sort of emerges to the surface. Yeah, okay. Mm. We, we had never done that in the Gulf of Mexico, so a plan on how to do that safely um, was what was was being developed and talked about. There was conversations about could we even do it? Mm. You know, we, we're having a check with government agencies. We didn't know if we could do it safely, so we're having risk assessments going on about that. Yeah. Um, we've, uh, in addition, um, we had disbursement that we were putting down at the at the source of where the oil was coming out, 
um, to, to break it up so that the, the, and look, I'm no expert in this, but the microorganisms can eat the oil, apparently, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you break it down into small enough um, uh, parts. So this disbursement was, was doing that. So you had drill ships with 180 people on it to come in and figure out how to get something down and pump disbursement to, to, to that area. Um, you have all these, uh, you know, ROVs, ROV units going down. Uh, and remote operated vehicles, yeah? Yeah, remote operated vehicles uh, that's being controlled up by a ship uh, above it. So you have, you know, three or four of those all going down by the same site, by, by the, the same site. And you got to figure each one of them, each one of those has tethers on it. So the fact that like getting those tethers intertwined and, and having a, 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 you know, losing one of your ROVs, um, which then, you know, lose capability, right? It's not just about money, but it's also about the response capability. So, you know, it's, it's all of those things. Now, in addition to that, you have ships, uh, you have supply vessels that are going to the site, running through oil and then coming in to get more supplies. So you have to have a decon station. Uh, you have to have air monitoring at site on all these different vessels so that you know what's being, uh, what kind of air quality we're getting at site. Um, and then on top of that, we're setting up air monitoring uh, along the shoreline um, to make sure that as winds come in, that we're not getting some type of air quality uh, issues associated with, um, uh, with the Gulf of Mexico spill inland to where you have people. So then on top of that, you have all these operating facilities that surround this area. It's still going, yeah. Still going, right? And, and now what happens if, if they have a, a major event and you've got all the resources there? So, you know, the government shut down the Gulf of Mexico. You couldn't drill in the Gulf of Mexico and they shut down production. So okay. now, now you have all of this pressure and people wondering what's going on with their facilities and, and so forth and so on. Look, the, the questions, the hazards, the things that were coming up literally were being just fired out of the Gatling gun. As fast as you could think about what's going on, you think about 10 questions and, and hazards associated with that. How do you, so for everyone out there, I mean, this is what fascinates me around planning and, and, I think one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned from the military was that ability to plan and work through different problems. Can you give us some insight into what you guys were doing or your own process of working through those Gatling gun of plans and issues that you're dealing with? What do you start? Uh, and so equally, uh, I've, I've, I've got most of mine from the military as well. That's where yeah. it started. Um, and you know, uh, it, it's, it's, Kind of about controlling what you can control and uh and and continuing to make progress perfection is uh is, is the killer of progress um you know we didn't look for perfection we looked for just making uh, a, a step forward and for, for every step forward we made there was 10 other questions and problems that are associated with that step so it was really just being able to, uh, to to focus on that one step at a time and being able to prioritize whatever it is that we were working on. What is the most important thing? And again, I, I, I go back to based on the objectives of this uh, of this response. 
And look, that's the that's just the way my mind works. Is what is the objective? Yeah. And and move toward number one objective first. And you've only got so many resources, so something's got to fall off the table. And yeah. we had all kinds of things falling off the table. Mm-hmm. We would capture it, and we had people that were capturing it, and they would distribute it to teams that would go and try to work it the best that they could. Um, while still allowing the on-site team to manage the the Gatling gun of problems coming in uh, as as they come in and we're being pulled in a thousand different directions. This is one I often find it's very difficult for, for teams to work through when you've got a you know simultaneous issues that you need to deal with um, in in an incident. You you obviously said you had teams that you could distribute some of these problems out to so. Did you package them up in a way? Or did you put them into a bucket and say, this team here, go away and work on this problem and come back to us in a set time? What was that little process that you worked through for those, you know, to keep things going and keep that concurrent activity that keeps you moving forward? Um, all kind of a blur, to be quite honest. <laughs> uh, I, you, you know, uh, I, I, I would hope that you know, nothing completely fell off the plate, but that would be, uh, you know, I'd be fooling myself to, to, to think that. Oh, we always uh, know that that happens, mate. Always something missed, yeah. something missed, but you're picking up hopefully with the process that you've got. So, so you're, um, the, the, whoever's able to capture it, captures it, uh, puts it on the board and, yeah. uh, and we work our way down the board. That, that's honestly the way that we, uh, that, that we approached it. Um, yeah. the, the, the problem with that is that, um, you, 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 you have to be surrounded, um, you know, uh, you have to trust that the people around you, uh, are, 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 can pick it up and, and, and run with it. Um, and, and really that is, uh, you know, that's what we saw. So it, it, it left a little, um, uh, you know, where you'd be hesitant to, 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 you know, you'd be like, this is important and and I can't let it fall off the plate. Um, There were so many of those things that were so major and so important um, that it had to fall off and somebody had to pick it up Mm. Uh, and you had to trust that they would do it and do it well. Um, And, and that you could forget about that problem. Um, so that's honestly, I think that's what we did is we, we, we forgot about the problems that we couldn't control uh, at that particular time or didn't make the top of the list. Uh, and then you hope that it, it found its way um, down. You made sure it made it to the list. And then yeah. you hope that it would find its way to conclusion at some point or that it would move past that problem. And then another problem was created and you could solve that problem because if usually one problem had, Again, 10 problems Ten associated with it. Come out of it. As we transition from COVID-19 to the new normal, are you re-evaluating your business continuity and crisis management practices? You'll need resilience software you can trust. Thankfully, Noggin's next generation 2.0 incident management platform is here to help. Whether it be managing a pandemic, a natural disaster, a corporate crisis, a safety incident, or a major security event, Noggin helps organizations seamlessly transition from business as usual to crisis mode. With dedicated solutions for business continuity, crisis management, work safety, emergency management, 
operational security and case management, Noggin is best positioned to support you in your time of need. Learn more at www.noggin.io. You know, you're set up now with Homer as, as probably that operations sort of level center. Can you recall much of what was going on behind the scenes from a, you know executive leadership team or the crisis team that was coming together from a or had come together from a BP perspective and uh, and how that interrelationship worked between the, the different levels? Yeah, uh, at, at, and I can't remember exactly at what point I was down. I was in Homa for about two weeks. Yeah. Um, and over that two week span, uh, keep in mind, initially, we thought that we were going to take it over uh, slowly within the first week and then, you know, be ready for the, the back end. Um, and uh, and that just didn't happen. So, um, you know, at some point uh, that it, it, it definitely as it transitioned to HOMA, mm-hmm. it seemed like there was a joint command at that point. You, you had uh, an incident command team in Houston. You had a incident command team in Homa. Yeah. Um, although they were saying that they were switching it over, there still there seemed to be a a, a joint command. Uh, in addition, I think it was starting to set in um, that uh, because it was so big, there the the levels. Um, of the executive leadership team started to find their, I started to see them in the conversations more. Yeah. Where normally your, um, your, your, you know, ICS leader, uh, your incident commander uh, is the, the, the head person in the room when you're having these discussions. And what you started to see was others were starting to, to kind of show up in the conversations. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll, from, from my perspective, uh, I was, again, head down kind of uh, in the health and safety, safety officer, health and safety unit leader roles. Um, and I, I, I sense the frustration of multiple decision makers and, and things that were going on between HOMA, Houston, and the executive leadership team. There seemed to be disconnects and, uh, and, and I'll call it disagreements, or you, you would hear people that would normally be able to make the decision would be like, okay, well, I've got to check with these other people, which, uh, which added to the frustration associated with the response where I was. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and how was the, you know, the media and the other issues, were they sort of handled with you in Homer? Uh, did you have much of an interface with that, or was that all sort of handled from Houston or from the ELT? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Uh, what I know is media was everywhere. Uh, mm. Security was tight, yep. and uh, and they, it, you know, the great thing about the ICS is you have again people with roles. Yeah. And I knew that that wasn't my role, so I had nothing to do with it, and uh, <laughs> and. and, and Move, move down solving the problems that I could solve versus worry about whatever problems that was was out there. Yeah, I mean, the, the the famous quote that came from the from the whole disaster was, you know, from the CEO at the time, Tony Haywood, a British guy who'd said, you know, we want this, all want this over. We want. I just want my life back. Um, did that sort of filter through with you guys in the operations center, and, and did that have an impact on you at the time? 
you know, at the time, I really, um, I, I, I don't, it didn't have an impact on me. Yeah. Um, I, I can't speak to everybody else that was there. Um, uh, I, I'll tell you, just from my perspective, is that, look, that thought went through my mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would like to have my life back, you know. Had the, you left, way- I mean, at the time you had a family or anything like that, it was, what was your sort of home situation when you've picked up on a few moments notice and gone? You know, I don't even remember, quite honestly. (laughs) You know, I I do have a family. I had a wife at home and a daughter, uh, a young daughter. um, And I have no idea about what the plans were or anything else for the next three weeks. Uh, You know, once once that happened for three weeks, uh, I I, I honestly, I I probably called home. But by the end of the day, you know, I was arriving at five o'clock in the morning. And I was leaving at probably 10, uh, 10 or 11 uh, at, at night. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just, I know I didn't talk to them during the day. Yeah. I, I know that for a fact because I, I had zero time uh, mm. during the day. Um, so it was probably a quick call at night and a pass out and up doing it the next day. Uh, you know, one of the things I would, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this, uh, one of the things that I would mention is that, you can only do that for so long. Yeah. At some point, you become ineffective, and uh, and you've got to you know you you've got to tap out and uh, and know that you know you're you're probably doing more harm than good. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. I think when when you are so engrossed in the problem, I think people find it very difficult then to hand that off or trust that's being looked after. But you know the like you said, the impact on everyone is significant. How was that sort of seen or what did you see as the impacts on, on people in Homer or in Houston before you left? How, how was that starting to impact people emotionally when they're confronted by the immediate issues that you had of the disaster, but then the flow on effects as well? How did that start to impact people emotionally? I wouldn't call out any direct positions, but I would say there probably isn't one position in that ICS, both in Houston and in um, in Homa, that didn't have some type of breakdown at some point. And I mean that that could be you know people are different. That could be just going outside and 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 you know kicking the cement or uh, are standing in the middle of the briefing and just breaking down in tears and uh, and 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 or standing in the middle of the briefing room and just screaming at the top of your lungs at, you know, just the situation and, and how messed up that the situation is, whatever they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I seen a, a, the gamut of those emotions in those two weeks that, that I was in Homa or I was part of that initial response. Um, I seen those emotions. Um, and then even after that, um, there was, uh, th- there was, a lot of emotional stress associated with, um, you know, just again, the number of problems, the magnitude, the impact to people um, with fatalities, with people that were hurt, uh, fatalities in the incident, hurt in the incident, and uh, then the impact, the environmental impact uh, afterwards. All this going on around you is that, 
hard to hard to sort of contextualize then those those emotions and the impact it's having on you you said it emerged in in instances there um live in front of you but what was sort of the flow-on effects that you sort of realized and saw in others and yourself post the incident well for me uh look i i, I grew up in south louisiana um the the oil spill um is closest to the south louisiana waters i i, I grew up fishing offshore. Uh, I grew up fishing inland. And, uh, you know, honestly, that's, that's my home. That's your home, man. That's, that's where I grew up. And, and at some point after uh, the initial uh, response, um, and, and I can't remember the timing associated with it, but BP had a town hall uh, and it was probably a month or two into, uh, into the, the incident itself. Um, and, and they talked about, you know, the impact and the, and they talked about stock price and, and other stuff. And, uh, and I remember that not sitting with me real well, um, is that, you know, here I am, um, responding to this incident and it, it's, you know, a, a foreign oil, oil company on, in us waters, and they have a spill of this magnitude, um, that, at the time, you, you didn't know what type of knock-on effect that it would have. And, you know, it, it, I, I remember really being upset about, you know, not being able to go fishing in those same waters with my daughter mm. that I grew up and could enjoy because of uh, a, a company that I worked for. Um, and, you know, look, that, that didn't sit well with me, quite honestly. Um, and I had to I had to look inside and see that is this still something that I want to do? And and the answer to that was actually no. Um, I, the, you know, this just isn't where I want to be. Uh, I have good things to say about their you know all the things that they did. Uh, that's just where it settled for me. And I think uh, when you look at my at the team of of uh, of peers that I worked with at that time. Um, there's only only one of the, uh, I think our team was about seven or eight people. Um, uh, and I'm talking about the drilling and completions HSE group yeah. of, of those seven or eight people. There's one that's still there. Wow. Uh, everybody else was gone within, you know, probably uh, less than a year. Um, so Man, so the, the knock on effect was was pretty serious for the people that work there. You figure after going through something like that, that it would bring people together. Um, and it did. The people that, that worked together, uh, you know, were really close. Um, but you also seen as it started to be secured and as the, the court cases were coming up and, and that type of thing, that uh, you, you started seeing where people got away from kind of the, the company line and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and just for whatever reason, I don't know. I can only talk to mine. And that was that was kind of my turning point um, from the incident. It sounds like you're really challenged by that yourself. I mean, on one hand, you're working for, for that company and then um, you're talking about them like they're a, a completely different party. How did you sort of come to terms with that yourself? Are, are you talking about during the response or after? Uh, a bit of both, actually. Okay, so if we look at during, 
um, uh, again, I think from a military standpoint is like one foot in front of another, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. what, what might seem impossible yeah. is possible as long as I keep putting that, that foot in front of the other foot. Um, so I, I think look, where I challenge that though, too, you know, is you, you, you're doing that with an objective in mind, obviously towards the problem that you're dealing with, but then, you know, a real sense of purpose behind you as well. Had that sense of purpose being challenged at that moment? No, not not really at all. Because for me, it was still about people and the environment. Supporting people there, yeah. Understood. Right, I, and I think I, I honestly I, I put out of mind. I, I and I I really I guess the best way I can say it is I really didn't care about the stock price. I didn't yeah. care about the the money that it was going to cost. I didn't care about any of those things. Uh, I I cared just about the people and the things that I can do to help that. Mm. And then also the, the things that I can do to help the environment. And by the way, the environmental part of it affects, you know, millions of people that rely on the Gulf of Mexico fishing and all these other things. Right. Mm. Uh, so it's still about the people. Um, and as long as I concentrated on the people, uh, I, I had really zero thoughts about that. Yeah. Until I came out of the uh, out of the ICS uh, response, uh, which again was roughly about three weeks after the incident. Okay. But when I came out, um, I got a little bit of a break, and then I, I went into supporting our operations that were just ongoing versus the uh, the emergency response. And how did that transition then start to work? I mean, obviously there was an ongoing incident which took a, another you know five six months to really to control, uh, let alone to recover from, but what was that sort of transition like uh, for you moving out of that ICS and getting back into trying to get some sort of normalcy? Well, I think that's the time that the, the reality of the impact to me and also the company that I work for to the state that I love, mm. right? So when I started uh, realizing the impact of that, um, it, you know, I went through a range of emotions. Mm. One is, look, glad it was, uh, it was, uh, if it had to be anybody, I was really kind of glad it was BP because they had planned for these emergencies. They had done a lot of work around that. Uh, if it was a company that had done less work, uh, I think the, you know, the response wouldn't have been near of what it was. Mm. Um, whether, whether you're on the side that it was a good response or a bad response, um, look, uh, there are companies that wouldn't have, have, you know, opened it up and done some of the things they did. So for that, I was grateful. Uh, on the other side of that was that, look, I feel lied to. I feel like, you know, there was a plan that was supposed to be in place to manage this. And, uh, and BP, Transocean, all the other service companies that played into this didn't hold up to their part. And, and, you know, so, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to speak to the root causes and, 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 and all of that because I know it's outside of the emergency response, but you know, all of those things went through my mind and yeah. uh, being in the HSE team and seeing that we realized we had problems and we realized that that rig, there was some issues there mm. and, uh, and we had opportunities to fix it, but we didn't. Um, so, you know, with, with that being said, all those things went through my mind and, and, I came to a place where I was I was more disappointed and mad than I was, uh, you know, uh, happy. So mm -hmm. I, I made the choice 
uh, a couple of months after I came out of the emergency response uh, itself uh, that I was going to move on. I was I, I would not move on before the uh, the oil was secured because I I, I felt that uh, I guess a sense of owner ownership associated with you know I was there when it happened so therefore I, I should make sure that at least it's secured mm-hmm. uh, not 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 that it depended on me I, look yeah. I recognize that but you know I played a small part in that in some way shape or form so I would play my part until it wasn't there anymore. So I made that commitment, and after that, I was full-fledged looking for something else. You um, looking back on that that response and the indelible impact it has on no doubt on yourself, but then everyone else that's been um, affected by it or part of it. What was the sort of key lessons that you took away from pre- um, preparing or responding to these types of major events? From that point, I worked for several oil companies. After that. I worked for Hess uh, as the Asia Pacific HSC manager for drilling completions. I, I worked for um, uh, BHP as their worldwide HSC manager for drilling and completions. Uh, and I currently work for a pipeline company. Uh, so all oil and gas. And everywhere I went after that, um, I made sure that emergency response has a voice in the room. Um, you know, that's, that's what I took away is we need a voice in the room for the emergency response piece of our business. Um, and if, if you go to companies that have not had a major event or something major happen, um, it's hard for their leadership team to get their mind around the importance of uh, emergency response. Um, I, I was, when I went to Hess, I was really lucky because uh, uh, there was a lady at BH, uh, at, I'm sorry, there was a lady at BP that had moved over to Hess prior, right, right before the uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon incident. Uh, and she was an emergency response specialist. So she was actually over there and, uh, and they had a first class emergency response set up. And that was actually one of the things that drew me over to that company is because I want to be a part of organizations that have that. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess the easiest way to say it is that, look, it's, uh, the, the thing that I take with me is that uh, emergency response needs a voice in the room. And if it doesn't have that voice, uh, it's a personal responsibility for me to, to push the importance of, uh, of emergency response. And then when I went to BHP, I, I had several um, uh, interactions with the Australian government, Trinidadian government, Mexico, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, around emergency response. Um, BHP, at, at, at least from a oil and gas standpoint, had never had a, a, an event uh, of, any, of, of any magnitude that, that I know of. Um, whenever uh, I went over to BHP. So it was something that I brought there, uh, that I brought with me there was kind of a passion for emergency response. So in any of the projects and that type thing, it was about, you know, making sure we've asked the right questions, making sure that we're prepared, that we, we, we have drills that are not just tabletop drills. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but the, the short of it is, is be prepared, prepared, prepared. That's what I took away from it. And uh, as part of that being the prepared is drilling um, on a um, on a regular basis to make sure those muscle memories are are known. Yeah, and that's drilling in the context of actually exercising. Yeah, 
Yeah, not, <laughs> not drilling a well. That's yeah. right. <laughs> what was probably the biggest leadership lesson that you took out of this incident? Uh, is, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I've already mentioned it where I think perfection kills uh, progress. You know, that's, uh, that's everything you go through. If, 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 if you can just kind of use that as the guiding principle, um, you can, you know, you, you can, can make it through just about anything. Um, and I can think of times within this response that, uh, that I was just so overwhelmed that, you know, I had, had zero patience. Uh, I had, you know, uh, I would, I would interact with people, spit it out. I need it. What, what do you need? Tell me what you need versus, you know, having a little bit of empathy and, and, and actually just stepping back and, and, and going through the motions of one step at a time. I can only do what's what's in front of me. Let's let let's let's do it. That's that's the thing I, I took out of it. Um, uh, I'd like to say that uh, you know I, I do it well, um, but I know I'm far from, <laughs> I'm far from perfect. But each time that I do it, I, it I, I just get a little bit better, and that's that's really all that I can I can ask. How do you balance that juxtaposition of being you know the adrenaline of the moment, but then the realization also that you're dealing with a, a worst case situation where you've got death or fatalities or, or other sort of incidents that have emerged as a result of these. Yeah. By nature, um, I, I'm a high energy type of guy. Uh, I thrive on that. So it's, th that's extremely tough for me to, to back that down a couple of notches and, uh, and everybody that is in that, um, moment is all, you know, whether they thrive on that or not, that's where they are. They're at full RPMs or full peak. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the only way that I could deal with, deal with it is again, just think, just stopping breathing and just saying, Hey, look, one step at a time, just, just relax. What doesn't happen in these next three or four seconds that I take just to, just to be calm and listen, um, you know, won't make or break this whole thing. Hmm. It, it, you know, it's just, it, 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 it's really just that simple. Um, you know, that's, that's the way that I, I tried to manage that. And, and I'll, I'll be the first to say that uh, I, at, at, at that time and place in my career, that age and my personality all played into that not going very well for me. And at times it did, and at, at times I was able to think about it, and, and it went it went better than uh, than others. So yeah, it's a it's a um, uh, it's an interesting reflection point to be honest, Clint, because you know some of those things that make you really sharp can also be those things can that can that can make it very challenging to deal with. You know, uh, and I know that I've battled with that myself. You know, when you're task oriented, you're mission focused, that empathy for other people's challenges or issues at that point in time is is often low for me so i think it's a i think it's just a, a it's also a bit of a natural reaction but understanding that and dealing with it and i think jim molan when he was over in iraq he said that you know in those certain moments it's more important to be as, as everyone's getting more and more emotional or as a situation even more and more critical 
you need to up the levels of politeness is the language you use. And I thought that was just an amazing insight from a guy with such a large scale of issues that he's dealing with as a general in charge over there in, in Iraq. It was fascinating to have that perspective. And, and I think, you know, to hear your reflection on the way that you deal with that is also amazing. So thanks for sharing that with me. Sure. Well, thanks for that insight. I, I, and I'll, I will mention what came, some of the things that, uh, one of the things that came to mind is that um, the, the the safety officer that uh, that was um, down in Homa with me, um, he was an engineer, and he is is one of those guys that that really I won't say cannot make a quick decision, but does not choose he chooses not to make a quick decision. Yeah, and he has to have like all the all the details even. Like it, it could be something as, as simple as so-and-so, uh, you know, we have a person that's, uh, you know, on a ship that has been hurt. He's going to ask what their name is, what's, and what's some detail, you know, when in my mind, I don't care about any of that. Here's yeah. the problem. Let's go solve it. Yeah. Um, so the, the reason, the thing that comes to mind is that uh, the most irritating thing I had uh, during that time that I just remembered was dealing with him. <laughs> However, I, I think the best thing that I had at that time was actually dealing with him. Yeah. Uh, because that that contrast made me slow down and mm. and and just asked a little bit more questions, which made the you know the time not so critical and the details more important. And I don't know if that just happened by chance that he got paired with me or I got <laughs> paired with him. Um, but extremely frustrating at the time. But I think we complemented each other very well in uh, in the overall scheme of things. So I would say, you know, a learning that I just kind of thought about is that if you're thinking about the incident support incident teams, um, you know, putting two high energy guys next to each other that feed off of that would be a disaster uh, waiting to happen um, if if they can't get that under control and. I believe that he probably helped me get some of that under control. As frustrating as it was to me at the time, uh, and as irritating and, and as non-productive as it was in my mind, it was probably the best uh, productive, most productive thing that could have happened. So. Yeah, a bit of balance between process and um, planning and execution um, always helps, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, Clint, it's been a fascinating insight hearing your story. It's obviously the tip of the iceberg when you're talking about what went on for the whole response. Um, is there anything you'd like to say that would sort of share a context for everyone else about what went on throughout the whole Deepwater Horizon incident and the teams that came together after it all? Yeah, uh, for for me, you know, I I would not want to 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 finish the interview without saying that you know the 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 response and the people who responded. Um, and the, the effort that they gave to, um, you know, to, to manage this emergency uh, was, you know, just tremendous. Everybody, everybody had the, um, uh, you know, people in mind, had the environment in mind, and, and, and were fully committed to minimizing the damage as, as much as we could after it happened. Right. I mean, that's that's what we were faced with. That's the situation. And 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 people gave everything to get there. Um, 
you know, I, I just, it, it's, for me, it's important to, to recognize that this is just one story in the, in the, in the midst of, at the end of the day, there's probably thousands of people that responded uh, and everybody, you know, dropped whatever they were doing to, to give whatever they could give to get, um, you know, to, to manage the response. So for that, you know, I have a, a heartfelt, you know, thank you. Uh, I could tell my story just simply because of all the supporting work that everybody else did to, to help me have my story. And I'm assuming there's probably, you know, multiple layers above and below um, that, that did the, that had the same commitment and dropped everything that to, to help. So, you know, I think it's, it's just a, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a good show of, uh, you know, just compassion that people have and the willingness to help. So uh, that's, I definitely want to, to, to send that message, a big thank you to everybody that was, was, was part of, uh, of, of that response. Yeah, the, the, these things are ultimately human events, you know, whether it be a, a physical, virtual, whatever the incident that's caused, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to people like yourself, the hundreds of people behind these sort of these situations, working in war rooms, in crisis rooms, um, you know, held it away, working through problems to try and resolve them, that, um, that crisis talks aims to tell those stories. So, so Clint Honeycutt, it's been amazing to hear your part in that whole picture of the Deepwater Horizon event. So thank you for, for joining joining us and, and sharing some of these insights personally or otherwise. But one last question I always ask um, each of the interviewees on Crisis Talks. You know, if you had a chance to sit down with someone that's been through a crisis or led through a crisis and sat, you know, you had a chance to sit down and have a chat with them or a coffee and ask them a few questions, who would that be? You know, that's a tough question, especially probably for, you, you know, I've, I'm involved in emergency response, but it's not necessarily my specialty in what I in, in, in what I do kind of day in, day out. So it's not necessarily a question that comes up. Yeah. Um, but if I'm just kind of thinking through uh, kind of first things that come to mind is like industry events like um, the Deepwater Horizon or uh, Piper Alpha or, or those events. That's kind of what comes up to mind first. Yeah. Um, uh, however, I, I think um for me probably more i'm i'm more intrigued about um you know uh, probably military situations um would 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 probably be what 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 i would want to to kind of or somebody that i would want to sit down with and um i, I have a, a real good friend of mine that i went into the military with and um he him and I went at the same time. He was at SEAL Team 6 for probably uh, 15 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now that you're asking me this, he actually comes to mind that I would like to sit down with him and, and just talk through. Look, he's, he's kind of a private guy, so I, I know he doesn't share a lot of details. But I, I, would, I would like to think about his mindset when he go when when he was faced with you know uh, different situations and and how he managed in his mind through those situations yeah. I, I don't know you know I, I wouldn't sit down and ask him the details but uh, of uh, about it but what's what's he thinking and how does he process 
the events that that he's seen over his years. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm grateful for the question because I would have never thought about it otherwise. Um, and then the other is that you know I know that I have that opportunity to sit down with him and ask him. Mm. So the next time that we get together over a over a cold beer, he's uh, He's got a question coming for him, so <laughs> I'll, I'll let him know. Well, hopefully, uh, I'm, I'm glad I can give you, hopefully, that gift that you can share with him personally. I look forward to hearing how that, that question goes with, with you and him. Now, um, that closes our, our talk today on Crisis Talks, talking about the Deepwater Horizon incident 10 years ago. It's been fascinating talking to you, Clint, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with me and also to the listeners out there. Um, so, Clint Honeycutt, thank you so much for joining us on Crisis Talks. It's been a real privilege and uh, look forward to hearing uh, of uh, all the wonderful success in the future for you and your family and everyone else associated with this. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate the time and, uh, and the consideration for my story. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Episode 2 of Crisis Talks for 2021. Over the next few episodes, I plan to take a step back and look at the way that organisations that I've worked with prepare themselves for the worst case situations and respond proactively and with confidence to any type of events that might threaten their people, their operations and their reputation. Over the last 18 months alone, I've been involved in nine full crisis team activations. These range from bushfire events affecting the whole east coast of Australia, COVID, global cyber attacks, IT outages, cyclones, operational incidents and product recalls. Across all these events, I've seen some amazing instances of organisations working through adversity and showing true resilience in the face of really difficult situations. What I hope to share with you over the coming episodes is some of the tools and tips that I've learned and some of the leadership lessons that I've learned from those particular incidents so that you can apply them within your own organisations to preempt, prepare and respond to any situation you may be confronted by. If you have any recommendations for interviewees for Crisis Talks, email me at grant at leftofboom.com.au.